It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. The Locked On NBA Fantasy Minute is presented by PrizePix. PrizePix is the most fun you can have playing daily fantasy basketball and winning up to 25 times your money. Go to prizepix.com slash LockedOnNBA and use the code LockedOnNBA for a first deposit match up to $100. We are very much in the thick of the fantasy basketball playoffs. You might be starting it this week. You might be already in it. It might be a week away. And at this point of the year, with only five weeks left in the entire regular season, Playing the schedule is the most important thing. So this week, the Minnesota Timberwolves and the Los Angeles Lakers play two games only. So any fringe players you have from those teams, even guys, yes, like Kyle Anderson replacing Kyle Anthony Towns, that's not worth it with two games on. You need to be stacking extra games and you need to be looking at the teams with four games. You need to be looking at teams with games early in the week and then switching them out for teams with more games later in the week. Get more games in, play the schedule, be cutthroat with injuries and get players in to get yourself success for fantasy basketball. Jackson Gatlin here, host of the Monday edition Locked On NBA podcast. Every Monday, I cover the three biggest stories in the NBA with the local experts from Locked On. It's an awesome recap of the weekend of the NBA and a look at what's ahead. Mark your calendars on Monday to join me for Locked On NBA podcast, available on YouTube and wherever you get your podcasts. One for three. One for three or yeah, one and that's two? That's what I meant. One for three. Oh, one for three. Yeah, that's what I meant. <laughs> USC, baby. Hey, what's going on? Welcome to episode number 714 of Locked On Raptors for Wednesday, May the 13th. I'm your host, Sean Woodley of RaptorsHQ.com and uh, Basketball, a brand new podcast you can check out on the Stringer Labs Podcast Network, co-hosted by myself and Katie Heindel, who, of course, you know from many, many appearances on this podcast. Uh, I should also let you know that the Locked On Podcast Network this month is brought to you by Built Bar, which is wonderful if you are in the market for some tasty meal replacement snacks where you don't feel guilty after eating them built bar is the place to go we'll talk more about them later on in the show uh of course please make sure you're checking out the lockdown podcast network lots of great stuff across the board for you it is what ifs week on the Lockdown Podcast Network, both this week and next, actually. So if you're interested in some of the great hypotheticals in sports history, both recent and ancient, please go and find shows across the network that are particularly interesting to you. Lockdown Dodgers did an episode on Tuesday where they talked about the uh, non-signing of Kyle Drabeck, who, if you're a Blue Jays fan, you know who Kyle Drabeck is. He's a massive disappointment, and you can go hear lots of Kyle Drabeck, Clayton Kershaw talk uh, from uh, Jeff and Vince over there on Lockdown Dodgers. Of course, if you're a Blue Jays fan, Locked On Blue Jays with AJ Andrews, a great place to check out too. As baseball apparently nears a return, maybe ill fated, but we'll see. And uh, please make sure you're subscribing, rating, and reviewing to all the shows that you want to support. It's very much appreciated when you go and do that. All right, on today's show, we continue our dive into Raptors What Ifs after yesterday's chat with Catherine Niker about whether or not, or what would have happened had Vince Carter hit the game winning shot in game seven against Philly back in 01. And uh, we get a little bit more depressing I think today if it's possible to be more depressing than Vince Carter missing a game-winning shot as we talk about Andrea Bargnani and what might have happened if he was actually good at basketball and join me to talk about Andrea and what might have happened had he been good with Chris Bosh and in the post-Bosh era and so much more is uh, one of the rising stars of Raptors internet from the Too Much Hoops Patreon it is Brad Vermont Brad how are you great thanks for having me on the podcast 
Very uh, happy to have you, man. And uh, I guess happy to talk about Andrea Bargnani, who, uh, I, you know, that's a weird sentence to say. <laughs> What's ever happy <laughs> to talk about Andrea Bargnani unless no, they're talking I've, I've about been, his... Uh... Sorry, yeah, I've been happy to get rid of Andrea Bargnani before, but uh, <laughs> but never really to talk about him too much. He's doing some pretty good Instagram work, I will say. He did post a couple days ago uh, that he was missing Toronto. It was a photo from Queen's Key, and uh, I'm not sure why he would miss a place that rejected him so uh, severely, but that's fine. Uh, Shouts to Andrea. And we're going to talk today about Andrea Bargnani in the context of uh, sort of wish-casting a world in which he actually became good at basketball, which of course never happened. He was an embarrassment. He was uh, one of the funniest pieces of trade bait of all time going to the Knicks in exchange for <laughs> the pick that would eventually become Jakob Pertl and thus part of the Kawhi Leonard trade down the road. Uh, lots of good came from getting rid of Andrea Bargnani. Not much good came from drafting him back in 2006 with the first overall pick. Before we get into the hypotheticals of what might have happened had he actually made good on his promise, Brad, do you remember sort of the hoopla around that draft? Do you remember the guys who you had your eyes on? Do you remember the encroaching fear that it seemed certain that Brian Colangelo and Maurizio Garardini were going to take the Italian guy no one had actually seen play in North America. What were your thoughts and feelings around that draft? I wasn't following the draft too, too closely at the time, but the 06-07 season is when I started to really become a a heavy-duty Raptors fan. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I was sort of diving into Bargnani's rookie season and, and being wowed by his potential. And I was like, well, you know, the, the, I think the Magic had drafted Dwight Howard the year before. And I was like, mm-hmm. if, you know, if this guy turns out to be that quality of a player, uh, we're all set. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, didn't, didn't quite reach those heights. I don't think he got any uh, Defensive Player of the Year awards. But uh, uh, n- when the draft actually happened, I, I didn't have a ton of opinion because, I mean, it was just like this, you know, this European guy. The team thinks he's good. I hope he's good. And that, that was kind of all I was thinking about it at the time. Yeah, it was one of those weird sort of like Anthony Bennett-like drafts where there was no clear number one pick. And, you know, there were lots of guys who were being thrown around. I remember Tyrus Thomas was a big sexy name there because he had a nice tournament with LSU. Brandon mm-hmm. Roy, Rudy Gay, I think was the guy I wanted most just because I kind of liked UConn back then. And I, you know, just thought, hey, there's a wing who can do dunks. Let's draft him. I'm cool with that. Uh, LaMarcus <laughs> Aldridge was the other guy uh, who apparently did not fit with Chris Bosh, although I guess Andrea Bargnani did, despite them being basically uh, the same player. Although uh, LaMarcus Aldridge, significantly better, obviously. Um, but yeah, just uh, a weird draft. I remember. I remember I was on my grade eight graduation trip to Ottawa and I was on the bus home and we were just getting back home as the Raptors were about to go on the clock. And I remember getting in, sitting down, maybe getting five minutes of pre-draft talk because I also was not much of a draft guy at this point. I was a college basketball fan, but I wasn't really aware of who Bargnani was at all, other than the fact that uh, Brian Colangelo really liked him and that he was this sort of Dirk replica that was apparently going to come <laughs> over and shoot the lights out. And so when they took him, I, I I can't say I was thrilled because I wanted either Aldridge or Roy or Gay, and I think all three of those picks would have been better in hindsight than Andre Bargnani, especially uh, Roy and Aldridge, even though Roy was out of the league in six years. His highs were so much better. And he, over, it was a over, heck of a six years. Yeah, he played uh, 224 fewer games than Barks did and amassed uh, just about twice as much in terms of total win shares. Uh, <laughs> he was a <laughs> much better player and much cooler and uh, all that good stuff. But Oh, man, draining yeah. shots over the Rockets. He was amazing. Oh, beautiful stuff. The Rockets having uh, bad things done to them by the Blazers, a tradition like no other. 
This is Jake from Locked On. Locked On has teamed up with State Farm to spotlight some of the greatest supporting players in NBA history. After beating the Heat led by LeBron James and Dwayne Wade in 2011, Dirk Nowitzki won an NBA title and proved himself to be one of the greatest basketball players of all time. But there was one player in the starting lineup for the last three games of the finals that helped support Dirk all the way to a championship, J.J. Barea. Led by J.J. and Jason Terry, the Mavs' second unit proved to be the strength throughout the playoffs, where they led the NBA in bench scoring. But for games 4, 5, and 6 in the NBA Finals, Mavs coach Rick Carlisle inserted Barea into the starting five to help the Mavs space the floor and put more playmaking around Dirk. J.J. Barea had a knack for running the pick-and-roll with Dirk that helped the Mavs score more efficiently on their run to a title. Dirk Nowitzki couldn't score the way he did if he didn't have much-needed support from someone like J.J. Barea. Sometimes, you and I need that kind of support, too. Think of State Farm like a pivotal team player. When you need help protecting the things that matter most, remember the jingle and just say, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Um, but so, with that draft, you go into the rookie season, and I was, you know, intrigued in year one. And people forget, Bargnani made her all-rookie team in his first season. He averaged 11.6 a game. He shot 40, sorry, 37% from three and was like reasonably effective on a pretty good team. He came off the bench in all but two games and was just like a nice bench contributor. And then things really petered up from there. His shooting was terrible. His defense was worse. His rebounding was comically bad for a guy who was seven feet tall. But you know, there's a world in which I guess, and this is what we're talking about today, that he becomes good. And so we should probably, I guess, start, Brad, by laying out the parameters of what would constitute a good version of Andrea Bargnani. Because, you know, he ended up being a pretty good scorer. He averaged 21.4 game in the first post-Bosch season in 2010-11, the most depressing basketball season known to man. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, he was good at scoring. He was a pretty good shooter. He had decent three-point numbers over his career. 35% as a seven-footer is nothing to sneeze at. Uh, and especially since, you know, as his career went on, he became more and more terrible from outside. When he was with the Raptors, he was pretty good. So... My question to you, Brad, is what does a good Bargnani look like during that time? And I don't think it's fair to say, oh, he becomes Dirk, because no one becomes Dirk. But what would you have settled for as like, okay, I'm down with this guy. I'm down with the extension being handed out when it was handed out after four seasons in Toronto. Yeah, when when he first started, you you sort of give him the benefit of the doubt. It's like you you when got, a guy is a rookie, you focus on what he can do instead of what he can't do generally, or I do anyways. Mm. So, you know, he comes in shooting 37% from three, not, as you said, not good defense, not good rebounding. But I was sort of like, well, those, those things take young guys a little while to pick up. He's coming over from Europe. He's still adjusting to the life here. And maybe in, you know, two or three years, he'll be like an average defender and get like, you know, six or seven rebounds a game instead of like four or five. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And then, and then the, obviously the highest, uh, he he was going to be a lot better on the offensive side of the ball. Um, And, and I would have liked to see him get to a couple seasons where he may, I I don't think it's realistic to expect him to get a 50, 40, 90 season, but to, you know, just kind of narrowly miss that a couple times would have been nice. Um, And and in terms of just quality, not in terms of the style of his game, I was sort of thinking, what if Bargnani becomes basically as good as LaMarcus Aldridge was? Right, yeah. Where it's like, he, when you talk about the, you know, the top forwards in the game, he's not in the first four or five guys that you mention, but he's in the all-star conversation and he makes a few teams and that kind of thing. Yeah, I think that's a pretty good barometer to measure it against. I mean, the thing with Bargs is that, 
he wasn't really given a ton of opportunity to find any sort of comfort within the team. He's off the bench in year one. By year three, they're bringing in Jermaine O'Neal and playing him at the freaking small forward at times next to Bosch and O'Neal. And because Bosch doesn't really figure out how to play defense until after he leaves the Raptors and goes to Miami, there's never really a chance to kind of figure out, all right, what does this look like if Bosch is playing the five and he's like your backstop? And you have Bargs who, yeah, maybe he's a bit of a defensive liability, but if he's your four and he's stretching you out, I mean, that's pretty exciting. And maybe there's a world in which that tandem works as a four-five with Bosch kind of covering for Bargnani a little bit, especially before fours you know, kind of became a position you had to worry about defensively. And so we didn't really get that opportunity with Bargnani. But I do think, yeah, something along the lines of Aldridge, passable defense, you know, in concert, you know, kind of like the idea when Aldridge would play next to Robin Lopez. And it was, you know, Aldridge isn't the best, but Robin Lopez is pretty damn good. And so it kind of papers that over a little bit. So if you'd gotten that and if you'd gotten, yeah, just like a little bit more in the way of rebounding, and maybe like a, a bit of playmaking too. You know, it's hard yeah. to say. You know, it's not like Aldridge ever became like a wonderful playmaker, but Bargnani was a pretty much non existent passer at all. And if you could have used that to sort of flesh out his game a little bit, then maybe you're talking about, like you said, a bit of a fringe all star. And it's not a joke when the starters slash basketball Jones do a big Andrea all star campaign. It, you know, maybe there's actually some <laughs> merit to it. Uh, and you actually are okay with him getting that contract extension after his fourth season. So in that, what do you think the ceiling of, say that happens, say Bosch becomes a pretty good small small ball five or like traditional five, I'm not sure how we're looking at small ball in 2009 or 10 or whatever, but say that happens, you know, I feel like they don't ever feel a need to trade for Jermaine O'Neal and they kind of just let Bargnani and Bosch flourish as the four or five going forward. Say we see the peak of both Bosch and Bargnani there. You have Anthony Parker and Morris Peterson, I guess, near the tail end of that stretch, although I guess he leaves pretty soon into that tenure. And you've Mm -hmm. got Jose Calderon and maybe TJ Ford in there as well. How do you think those teams hold up in the Eastern Conference where you have the tail end of the Pistons, you've got the Celtics, obviously, with the big three, and then there's not a whole lot else to really be worried about until Derrick Rose comes in, and I guess the Magic are pretty good in there too. Do you think that team has any chance of doing anything that would sort of, you know, convince Chris Bosch to stick around, for example, in that 06 to 2010 range? It's a really it's a tough run because, as you mentioned, you hit the tail end of that uh, of that Detroit Pistons run where they were making the conference finals every single year. And then you start to get into the ascension of LeBron James and mm-hmm. those really good magic teams that had Dwight Howard at the center with Richard Lewis and Hito and the, the four shooters around him. And those teams were so dangerous. And just in terms of matchups, I think it would have been quite difficult to really do a ton. Like, I was, I was looking at those rosters. In the 07-08 season, Jamario Moon started fifty or 75 games. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, So it's like, okay, well, is that who he's going to be playmaking for? Is, like, you know, kicking the ball out to Jamario Moon and, and you know, Carlos Delfino? Mm-hmm. Um, it's a little bit, uh, it's a little bit tough to see them doing a ton, uh, because so in that 06, 07 season, they win 47 wins. It's the, it's the, the franchise record at the time they win the, uh, the Atlantic division and they lose four, two to the nets in the first round. Um, and I, I can't really see, you know, a rookie changing the outcome of a playoff series in, in the rookie season, kind of regardless of how good they are. Mm -hmm. Um, and especially if they're just going to be like a fringe all-star or whatever. And then the next season is when they go 41 and 41 and they lose in the first round to the magic. 
Um, and that was the season right before the Magic made the finals. And, you know, the team they lost, yeah, so the, they they had very little wing play. And then Bargnani, uh, he just can't match up against Dwight, so I don't see that series changing at all. And then the following season was when they went 33-49. and 49. Sam Mitchell got fired uh, midway through the season that time, uh, that season. And then, you know, they trade... Before that season, they trade for TJ Ford, Rosho Nesterovic, and then mid-season they get. Uh, oh, they traded for Jermaine O'Neal that season as well. Yeah, and they trade and, TJ and Rosho, I believe, for Jermaine O'Neal. Correct. Oh, that's that's what it was. That's what it yeah. was. Sorry, and um, and so I, I, that was a potential pivot point for me in this one, where I was thinking if they don't. If, if Bargnani is good, they're not trading for Jermaine O'Neal. So I looked up who some of the other offseason trade targets could have been that season. Mm-hmm. And one was Richard Jefferson, who was traded for Bobby Simmons and Yi Jianlian. Um, maybe I'm misremembering how good Bobby Simmons was. <laughs> um, but it would have been really great to get Richard Jefferson. That was uh, when he was... He got traded to the Bucks instead and then went to the Spurs and kind of flamed out there before coming back with the Cavs. But that might have been a nice bit of veteran leadership, a good wing guy who can play both sides of the ball. And then uh, Ron Artest was also traded that offseason for Bobby Jackson and Dante Green. And if the Raptors could have picked up somebody like that, kind of the same deal, a little bit of defensive toughness that the Raptors really, really needed at that time. And then... Uh, during that season, if they had held off on doing a trade and still had assets, they maybe could have gotten in, gotten in on uh, Chauncey Billups, right? Uh, who was traded for Allen Iverson that year, um, and and he, Billups wasn't the the Pistons didn't get a ton back for him, and uh, you know if the Raptors would have been willing to trade like Jose Calderon or or TJ Ford or and uh, I think the seventeenth pick ended up being Roy Hibbert. Uh, for the Pacers that season um, that that the Raptors traded away. So, you know, they could have gotten rid of some young assets to bring in somebody like Billups to sort of uh, play floor general with Chris Bosh and theoretical all-star uh, Bargnani. Yeah, I mean, getting the sort of roster balance figured out that summer, especially since you had that trade package of that Hibbert pick, 17th overall, and TJ Ford, I mean, it just seems too easy to package those guys for some kind of wing or some kind of guard. If you think Jose Calderon can be your starting point guard, which, of course, Jose Calderon is a starting point guard forever and always, uh, then, you know, there, there's probably a way to, to upgrade there. But, yeah, getting Jermaine O'Neal didn't make a ton of sense at the time, and he was kind of near the tail end anyway. And I, I feel like, you know, idiot 14-year-old me was much more excited for that than I should have been uh, <laughs> just because I remembered him being on some very good Pacers teams and thinking, oh, this guy's a star. Obviously, that this is a deal you make. But yeah, if you could have gotten a Jefferson or a Billups, I mean, Billups would have been amazing. And, you know, classic former Raptor who they let go away. Um, you know, that, that would have been lovely to have. It's just they... They never, I guess, trusted that Bargs Bosch front court to do anything. And, you know, it almost probably doesn't matter because that Eastern Conference at that time, as much as the East has been a joke for a very long, a very long time, I mean, the, the top of the East was very good then. You had the Celtics, you had like LeBron, like you said, just kind of coming out of nowhere and dragging that Cavs team in 07 to the finals, which might have been the best opportunity for the Raptors if Bargnani was like a super rookie out of the gate because that was before Boston ended up making the trade for the big three. But then yeah. you, got, you got the Magic, who were really damn good, and the Pistons, who were, I feel like, just would have 
beat the piss out of Andrea Bargnani. Oh, like, poor guy. <laughs> <laughs> like, it would have been awful. It would have been a bloodbath. And so, yeah, it, it just it didn't really line up. And I think the way the East was constructed there, a team built around two maybe not necessarily nitty-gritty big men in uh, Bargnani and Bosch probably wasn't going to go super far, maybe a round or two, but I don't see it being all that successful. Uh, we'll continue talking about and sort of talk about the post-Bosch era in just a second, but first I want to tell people about Built Bar. Built Bars are freaking delicious. They're the best protein, best tasting protein bar you're going to find. They're a protein bar that tastes like a candy bar. 16 amazing flavors, 8 chocolate nut flavors, 8 chocolate nut free flavors, and bars are covered in 100% chocolate, soft and easy to chew. Built Bars are great for the health conscious person. Lose or maintain weight while indulging in a delicious treat. Bars are low calorie, low sugar, high protein, and high fiber. And with the peanut butter brownie flavor, for example, you get 20 grams of protein, 170 calories, 3 grams of sugar, 3 grams of net carbs. And the mint brownie, you get 15 grams of protein, just 110 calories, 4 grams of sugar, and 4 grams of net carbs. And I can tell you the mint brownie is delicious. Go to BuiltBar.com, use the promo code LOCKEDON, and get $10 off your first order of Built Bars, which are just the best protein bar you're going to get. 7 times less sugar than a Cliff Bar, which is crazy. Use the promo code Locked On for ten bucks off at BuiltBar.com. That's Locked On for ten dollars off at BuiltBar.com, and they do deliver to Canada. This is Jake from Locked On. Locked On has teamed up with State Farm to spotlight some of the greatest supporting players in NBA history. After beating the Heat, led by LeBron James and Dwayne Wade in 2011, Dirk Nowitzki won an NBA title and proved himself to be one of the greatest basketball players of all time. But there was one player in the starting lineup for the last three games of the finals that helped support Dirk all the way to a championship, J.J. Barea. Led by J.J. and Jason Terry, the Mavs' second unit proved to be the strength throughout the playoffs, where they led the NBA in bench scoring. But for games 4, 5, and 6 in the NBA Finals, Mavs coach Rick Carlisle inserted Barea into the starting five to help the Mavs space the floor and put more playmaking around Dirk. J.J. Barea had a knack for running the pick-and-roll with Dirk that helped the Mavs score more efficiently on their run to a title. Dirk Nowitzki couldn't score the way he did if he didn't have much-needed support from someone like J.J. Barea. Sometimes, you and I need that kind of support, too. Think of State Farm like a pivotal team player. When you need help protecting the things that matter most, remember the jingle and just say, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. All right, Brad, let's continue on here talking about uh, Bargs and uh, his potential alternate history, which, man, it would have been nice had he uh, achieved that in any way. The... uh, post Bosch era, let's assume things go poorly. Let's assume the the Heat can, you know, convalesce and, and, and Wade and Bosch and, and LeBron team up in Miami anyway in 2010. And you start the post Bosch era with Bargnani as your main building block, fringy all-star. Maybe he makes an all-star team once or twice in the lead up. And he looks like he's destined to be at least a potential like number two on a decent team or maybe like a very good number three, something like that. How do you think those post-Bosch years play out? Under Triano, you do not have a particularly strong roster around him. <laughs> you've got the young guns. You've got Amir and Damar and Sonny Weems kind of figuring things out. You've got Calderon still leading the way. You've got an endless cycle of other point guards and wing players and, you know, Antoine Wrights and Julian Wrights and other Wrights, I'm sure, although Antoine might have been a little bit earlier. You've got, you know, the Linus Claza experiment, all that stuff going on. Do you think a good Bargnani changes anything about that post-Bosch era where they're extremely, extremely bad for a couple of years till Dwayne Casey comes in? Yeah, that was a that was a tough era. They went twenty-two and sixty in two thousand ten, eleven, and I 
I can't see him moving the needle a ton on a 22 and 60 team. Like, okay, you do 15 games better and you're still below 500. Uh, so that's it's pretty tough to see the Raptors like getting close to the playoffs there. And what that does, if they're, you know, even if they're only five or 10 wins better, now you start falling in draft position. Yeah. Um, and, and that becomes a little bit problematic. Uh, that offseason was when they drafted Valanchunas. And, uh, and if they, if Bargnani was really good, they probably would have taken a guard instead of Valanchunas. And I was just looking at the guards who, who came up in the 2011 draft. And the ones that were taken next after Valanchunas were Brandon Knight, Kemba Walker, Jimmer Fredette, Clay Thompson, Alec Burks. And that's just kind of a situation where if you luck out and get Walker or Clay, awesome. <laughs> and if you get one of the other three guys, uh, they might not be in the league in a few years. Um, so, so you're kind of walking uh, the edge of a knife there. And, and I can't see anything different happening that season. And then after that season happens, there's the lockout. And again, they're so bad. They're 23 and 43, 20 games below 500. And so, I mean, whoever they get in the draft is, is going to be too young to make the, a difference. They're at best a fringe playoff team. So now you're getting into 2012-13. And uh, I think 2012, that was when they traded for Lowry, right? Yeah, it was the 12, just before 12-13. Yeah, so... Yeah. I mean, I, in this theoretical version of Bargnani, I wonder uh, if his mentality and his approach is different <laughs> um, and, and how it would gel with Kyle Lowry's. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I, I could see uh, the real version of Bargnani grading on Lowry quite a bit, uh, just in terms of, you know, us hustle plays and stuff like that. Um, and, and, and I don't really see anything happening that season. And so now we've been through, I think, like six or seven seasons of Bargnani, and the Raptors have never won a playoff series. <laughs> or, yeah. or, they, or, or maybe if he's a little better, they win like one playoff series. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, just with the way the East kind of panned out it, it, and with how bad the rest of the Raptors rosters, roster was, Bargnani getting better it doesn't move the needle enough to do anything than besides just keeping the Raptors in sort of rebuilding hell mm-hmm. just outside the playoffs. Um, and, and, you know, uh, around 2013, that's when we get the, uh, the Rudy Gay trade. And, and uh, when did, uh, when did Masai sign as well? He, before the 2013, 14 season and his first order of business was getting Barks the hell out of town. <laughs> and, and I was, I was thinking like, if Bargnani is good, like if he's winning All-Stars and stuff, w- does Brian Colangelo get fired? Yeah. Um, and and that is obviously a very <laughs> key moment to the Raptors' uh, championship run that ensued in the, in the years after that time. Um, so that's, that's a really big sliding doors moment for me, is, is what if the Raptors get good enough just to not fire Brian Colangelo? That... I mean, we sort of have seen over time that his uh, ability to choose talent is not necessarily the best <laughs> um, with uh, both us and the uh, and the Sixers. So, uh, yeah, that, that could have been real bad for the franchise. Yeah, that whole sort of how a better version of Bargnani affects the Lowry trade, the Rudy Gay trade, and the eventual 
ouster of Colangelo was really fascinating. I, I do think, you know, if you do, like you said, get six or seven seasons in and Bargnani has not led them to a single playoff victory, it's just like a slightly more or less depressing version of what already happened anyway. And so <laughs> they might go along a similar track. I don't think having Bargnani precludes them from trading for Lowry. Although, like you said, if he's slightly better, maybe they fall to, you know, 8th, ninth, 10th in that draft in 2011 or 12, whenever they take Jonas and they get Brandon Knight, who was the guy I wanted very badly, or they get Kemba Walker and maybe that changes their calculus. Although hopefully having Brandon Knight doesn't change your calculus on whether you're going to trade for a point guard. Wouldn't um, change it for long. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he was okay then. And so maybe yeah. that does dissuade them from making that trade for Lowry. Uh, Walker almost certainly does. It's kind Kind of similar to the Terrence Ross thing, right? Where if he, if they, the Ben Uso triple double, if they pick a couple spots higher in 2012, maybe they get Lillard instead of Uso, or sorry, instead of Ross, and then that totally dissuades them from making the Lowry trade as well. So um, ultimately, yeah, and it's funny. This is more a question, not so much like if Bargnani was better. It's more if Bargnani gave a shit about anything ever, <laughs> that might be what like the better questioning and the phrasing of the question is because like, yeah, I can't imagine even like a slightly better version of Bargnani where he can like do a little bit more rebounding is a slightly better defender is a slightly more prolific scorer. I can't really see him caring all that much. He just doesn't really seem in his yeah. DNA and that would certainly great on both Kyle Lowry and Dwayne Casey. And, and yeah. I wonder how quickly they're able to sort of establish the culture change under Dwayne Casey as well. If Bargnani is still a big part of the team and like how just mad he, maybe he's the, the new Jonas where like Dwayne's just benching him all the time and people are very mad about it because like this guy gets buckets and Dwayne's like, he doesn't play defense. I'm sorry. He's not playing crunch time. Uh, and, th- and then we have an Andrea hive instead of a Jonas hive. That'd be fun. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And well, in those like 13, 14, 15 lineups, I mean, the defense on those teams is rough, too, because you got oh, Bargnani. Yeah. Even if he's way better, he's still going to be, like, what, average maybe. And then you've got young DeMar. You've got, you know, Grievous Vasquez, Lou Williams uh, in fourteen fifteen. Like, that's <laughs> that's a tough combo of guys to have even an average defense, uh, let alone a very good one. Yeah, and so ultimately, I do think that Masai inevitably gets booed. Sorry, that that uh, Colangelo gets booted eventually. Maybe it's in a, like another year. Maybe they wait until uh, like Denver flames out the following season before Masai moves on, and, and Colangelo still hangs on because he's got a little bit more equity from Bargnani, and the extension makes a little bit more sense, and it's not so much of a fireball offense. But I, I really think. I, I just don't believe in Colangelo's ability to build a roster around him, even if he was better. Like, he put together some real shit teams there for a long time. And, yeah. you know, that's ultimately, I think, to your point that, you know, even if he is a little bit better, they're not probably winning anything because of the way the East was set up. And I just don't buy that Colangelo was going to make these miraculous moves to, you know, augment Bargnani and his borderline all-stardom and turn them into a good team. Um, and so that, that, that's, that's an interesting sort of wrinkle. I'm just looking at some of these. He was so bad. Holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> 2012-13. He only plays 35 games because he's hurt all the time. Um, he has a 48.2 true shooting. He is worth negative 0.5 offensive win shares and a total of 0.1 win shares total over 35 games, which is ne- disgusting. <laughs> never, never had a season with uh, positive defensive box plus minus. <laughs> Incredible stuff. Negatives. 
that's the least shocking thing I've ever seen, but not at all surprising. <laughs> also, never a season where he was better than 0.9 value over replacement players. Uh, <laughs> 0.9 was his best in 09-10. Almost uh, made the single digits. Yeah, that was his best season, 09-10. A 55.2 true shooting. Great stuff. Uh, <laughs> your all-time high. And uh, 4.2 win shares, but still could not salvage that team with Hito and uh, a checked-out Bosch and all that stuff. So uh, truly stunning to think back that a 3-4 of Hito and Andrea Bargnani did not result in a good defense or a good team. Just uh, Oh, man. What? Tough to watch. Yeah, Colangelo was getting fired anyway. He was bad at his job, man. Holy God. <laughs> Yeah, I, and and like thinking back to it, when I was looking at the old lineups and stuff, I was like, I can't believe I ever expected this team to win playoff series, yeah. like before 2015 or something. <laughs> yeah, it is quite. Uh, and I had this feeling watching that 2013-14 series uh, last week when Vivek and I did a podcast about Game Four of that series, and just like the amount of Grievous Vasquez minutes and the amount of John Salmons and so much Chuck Hayes in that game. It's like, of course they were never going to win that series. What are we talking about here? Uh, and, yeah. you know, it's nice that by then, Bargnani was ruining the Knicks and uh, <laughs> and forever soiling the trading abilities of uh, James Dolan and Masai Ujiri, which we should be thankful for. I guess that's the other... Let's Let's talk about that. The other wrinkle here is... If Bargnani's pretty good, and even if Masai comes in in the summer of 2013 and his first order of business is to trade Bargnani to the Knicks, what if what if he becomes like okay and like like maintains similar status with the Knicks and is not an absolute embarrassment? Do you think? And this is hard to say because we're not in James Dolan addled bra- James Dolan's addled brain. But <laughs> what happens if Barks is pretty good and that trade doesn't look so bad for them, like? In the middle of thirteen fourteen, before things turn around, does the Lowry trade get done? That is maybe the most fascinating one of all. Yeah, I don't. I don't know if the Lowry trade gets done or not. Like that. That's tricky. And do they even bother? Uh, yeah, yeah. It's really. It's so tough to say because if they are trading Bargnani at that point with Demar and Lowry on the team, if Bargnani is good, presumably they can get a lot more for him. Right, you know what I mean. Like if if he if they he got turns a first it a, round pick for Bargnani. <laughs> <laughs> oh, bless you, James yeah. Dolan. Yeah, carry yeah, on. Yeah, so I I am not sure if uh, if they pull the trigger on that Lowry trade because there probably would have been something decent coming back the other way if if Bargnani turns out okay. I mean, you'd I guess maybe you could have seller's remorse if you did trade them to the Knicks for what they got, but what they got was okay anyways. And even if he was pretty good, it's not like he was on like a, a $5 million a year contract. You know, he was, he was getting paid like a star. And, and if you put him up to not quite a star, it still is a, a bit of an overpayment. And, and I think the Raptors probably would have valued the flexibility that they, that they have. And I, I think it would have turned out okay anyways. <clears throat> Yeah. If he had turned, if he had gotten better with the Knicks, yeah, I, I just I wonder like what the point of embarrassment for James Dolan is, where he's okay trading with Masai versus not, <laughs> and so like mm. it's uh it, you know dealing with these morons is it's always hard to uh, to figure <laughs> out what the hell's cooking up in those brains. You don't um, want to dive too deep into the brain of the moron. 
Yeah. Do you think there's a world in which Bargnani gets good enough that they don't trade him and then that alters history to the point where they don't win the title? Or do you think the end of his time, even if he's pretty good, is coming with the regime change anyway? I think it probably is coming with the regime change anyway, because like as I was going through it, I was like, well, okay, so you've got the this, the stuff that we talked about in the Bosch era where they're maybe winning one playoff series tops, and then you've got the rebuilding years after that where they're not winning any playoff series. And then after that, you get into the the Miami Heat with LeBron, Bosch, and Wade. And then you start getting into the like nuclear warriors. And it's just like, even if the Raptors somehow, if they hold on to them till like 2015, now you're just back to playing LeBron, Kyrie, and Kevin Love (laughs) again. And I don't think Bargnani is going to be the difference maker in that series. You know what I mean? Like it it just, uh, it gets pretty tough. He feels like he'd be uh, very prone to having LeBron spin a ball in his face, and uh, very much so. Yeah, uh, that that seems like the most likely outcome here. So, and, yeah, I, and I think the, it's probably the other coming thing, to an end anyway. Oh, sorry, sorry, go ahead. And and the other thing I was going to say was if if you hold on to Bargnani, now you start to get into salary cap hell, where you have to pay Demar on his first big extension that he got. You have to start paying Lowry appropriately, and then uh, and then you know you run out of money for Rudy Gay. Maybe that you're not able to do that trade. So there's there's a lot of moving parts, and I think keeping Bargnani around, even if he's good, doesn't put them over the top in any way. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, well put, Brad. Man, this was uh, a lot of fun. Uh, it's more fun than I've ever had talking about Andrea Bargnani. I think I can <laughs> safely say that. Um, so thank you so much for coming on the show. It's uh, oh, thank you for having me. Think about these hypotheticals are so weird because there's a million different things, you, like directions you can go with. But uh, I think we did it pretty good justice. Brad, where can people check out your work? Check me out at uh, YouTube.com/slash Too Much Hoops. There, I have a channel where I do breakdowns of the Raptors defense in particular. I cover other teams as well, but primarily the Raptors. And right now, I am going through the Raptors championship run, breaking down their defense in every single win. And I am about to get to uh, Raptors Bucks game six. So that should be fun. Where the defense is just uh, trust that Eric Bledsoe is going to crumble and uh, wither into a puddle. (laughs) And it happened. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Uh, yeah. Brad, you do amazing work, man. Please go to patreon.com slash too much hoops as well if you want to chip uh, Brad a couple bucks for his excellent work over there. Um, you can find me at Woodley Sean. You can subscribe to rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. It's much appreciated. Both this podcast and uh, basketball with a new episode dropping every <laughs> Thursday over on that podcast feed. Um, yeah. Make sure you're checking out across the lockdown podcast network. Lots of great stuff. We've got plenty of what if scenarios going on all week long lots of great interviews actually a really great one if you are a fan of the toronto maple leafs even uh nolan and ethan over at locked on red wings did an interview with darren mccarty longtime uh four-time stanley cup winner with the red wings and a big part of their conversation was about mike babcock and about how he's a terrible guy and so if you want to <laughs> go relive why the maple leafs fired mike babcock and why everybody hated him darren mccarty over on locked on red wings has an awesome job of detailing all that so please go and check that out uh uh, and yeah, subscribe to all the shows that you want to support on the network. That's going to do it for today's show. We'll be back again later in the week with more what if scenarios. I think Katie's going to stop by either Thursday or Friday. That'll be a lot of fun. Until then, though, have a great one, and we'll talk to you then on another episode of Locked On Raptors.
Hey, Prime members, you can listen to this Locked On podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today.